Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema. An actor, director, franchise, or genre, whatever it is, it's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month we're talking about westerns. And this week we are talking about... The good. The bad. And the ugly. Uh, Yes, directed by Sergio Leone, starring... Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef. This is th- one of the most definitive westerns of the latter half of the 20th century. It's uh, an epic to end all epics. It is probably Sergio Leone's most iconic film, and it made uh, Clint Eastwood into a household name overnight, huge star, but yeah, Good and the Bad and the Ugly. This was your first time watching it? Yeah. The only thing I'd seen was obviously the standoff because in yeah. cinema, how do you not see the standoff? But yeah, this was a very new movie to me. Yeah. Um, the standoff, that's the climactic, you know, three-way standoff in on Sad Hill Cemetery, which has been parodied over and over. And over. And over again. And it, again, we're we're going to get into that, but... Not only is this the first time you've seen the movie, this is your first young Clint Eastwood, your first spaghetti western, and your first Italian film? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've probably seen like regular Italian movies before, but spaghetti western, you did say that the one from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doesn't count. He, Yes, it does not count. That, that was a fake movie inside of a movie was but it was a fun experience mm-hmm. but yeah this is my first young clint eastwood movie because i think i've seen you know like million dollar baby other movies where he, you know he's older at the time so yeah i wasn't really sure what to expect with a young clint eastwood or blondie because clint eastwood is this kind of get I, off my lawn yes you know grand torino right mm-hmm. he's this iconic figure and this is kind of what made him a star yeah and it's kind of weird when you see him so young because like i know clint eastwood in because clint eastwood has been like a hundred years old like my entire life yeah in this movie he's like 36 in like 1966 and i'm like when kennedy was assassinated you had like two kids and a mortgage like what the fuck dude i mean he also didn't have you know that grit and kind of growl to his voice i was like wow kind of weird but yeah, so that's like the the crazy thing, you know, yeah. we have the young Clint Eastwood here, Spaghetti Western, and I kind of want to know, you know, before we really get into it, what were your initial thoughts going in? Did you think you were going to like it? Did you have any preconceived notions about the movie? Um, Going in, I was kind of thrown because I was like, oh man, Dean's throwing a, a three hour movie at me. What are we going to do? I like doing that sometimes. You do, because, I mean, we just talked about Stagecoach, and Stagecoach is a pretty fast-paced movie, and, you know... A pretty tight 96 minutes. Yeah, so with this one, I'm like, okay, I'm like, let's see how the story progresses in three hours, and it's a little slow-paced in this movie. Leone kind of, you know, reminded me of Lynch with, you know, these really long shots that, you know, don't get cut right away. He really likes holding on these wide wide composed shots and he does have a very deliberately slow pace like leone does not have this um 
tendency to like cut very quickly mm-hmm. like a lot of other action directors uh Django which yeah. is an another spaghetti western of like the same era that's cut a lot quicker than this but before we get you know really deep into the Leone style yes let's tell everybody what the movie's about you got the back of the box i got it right here Mm-mm-mm. two scam artists are joined in an uneasy alliance when Tuco, the greedy outlaw, learns of a stash of gold buried in a distant cemetery, but only the sharpshooting Blondie knows the grave the gold is in. When the two head off, they are pursued by the heartless gunman, Angel Eyes, who also wants to get his hands on the gold, and even when the duo pose as Confederate soldiers, get into a deadly shootout, and blow up a bridge, he does not relent. The film culminates in one of the most epic standoffs in cinema, only one man will walk away with gold, and the others will end up in a shallow grave on Sad Hill Cemetery. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. We didn't even practice that. That was good. That was solid. Like, we'll take it back to the booth, you know, run it a couple times. I think we got a hit on our hands. Break but, out the keyboard. <laughs> break out, like, yeah, you know, the guitar, get the whole trumpet sound going in. I think we can make this work. I think so. But... The movie, in terms of plot, it's really kind of spaced out. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't our first Leone film. We also watched Once Upon a Time in America, which also has this very slow, deliberate pace. He's very interested in composition, composing these images, portraying emotion through score and, and looks more than dialogue. And score is important to me, so I'm very appreciative of that, that that's also an important factor to him in filmmaking. Oh, yeah, and it that is kind of why his movies also seem to pull very long. Um, and I, honestly, I like the pace of the movie. It is it is a tad slower than I think you would call it a, any kind of action film. Yeah, I mean, that was basically my, my big gripe with the movie was that just it felt like it took forever to get through this movie. And we could have cut a lot of corners to kind of, you know, get to the point. Because I thought, I'm like, okay, it's Clint Eastwood, it's Leone, it's going to be gunfights and, you know, just action-packed. And it was kind of, you know, there's a lot of action to it, but it's like, it takes us a while to, you know, get from point A to point B being the cemetery. Yeah, which is kind of interesting saying, you know, point A to point B, because we don't even get to the real plot until Mm-mm. an hour in. The first hour is all set up. We are meeting Blondie, we're meeting Tuca, we're meeting Angel Eyes. And also, Angel Eyes has one of the best introductions ever when he just walks into that house. That's probably, I mean, apart from, you know, the the standoff, that has to be my favorite scene in the movie. Just the setup of him in the square doorway and the round um, interior arcway, the, the the arches of the house. I'm like, you know, stylistic wise, I was like, wow, this is a really striking shot. And he's in all black. You know that this is the bad guy. And is everyone not going to make it in this house? Like, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, yeah, because Lee Van Cleef shows up and Lee Van Cleef. We've seen him before mm-hmm. on, on the podcast because he's in Escape from New York. Yeah. And he just has one of the most striking bad guy faces ever. It's so, like, angular and tight or whatever. And in that black hat with the black clothes and he's walking against this, like, idealistic landscape in the White House, 
he looks like the angel of death has walked into this this place and he doesn't say anything for like 10 fucking minutes. Yeah, and that's something I don't know if it made it into the podcast last week or we were talking in the car when we were talking about Hatfield from Stagecoach. Yes. Where, you know, he has this face where he could be either a good guy or a bad guy and Angel Eyes, no, he's, you know, textbook bad guy. Yeah, and it's it's such a good introduction to his character because he sits there and this is kind of like the first salvo where we get the idea that there's a plot in this movie Mm -hmm. he's it's when he's like talking to the guy he's like oh so where'd the gold go missing and we get an idea of that and then we completely go away from that for about 45 minutes yeah and that's when we get like the tuco and blondie introduction we finally get to see clint eastwood but the movie is paced very weird and it's structured very long in a lot of mm-hmm. places because yeah it does take an really an hour before we get any real plot yeah and i think that was the most frustrating because it's like i get that you're trying to show this is what it would be like in the old west you know the days are long uh the miles are even longer but it's just like okay let's let's get moving let's get to the point i want to see clint eastwood i want to see you know how we actually lead up to the standoff in the very end and i mean very end it's like the last few minutes of the movie the standoff yeah it it is kind of it is kind of weird because we have this perception of this very epic kind of shootout movie this gunfight movie the like the the biggest images from it are the standoff in sad hill clint eastwood when he has like the uh the noose around his neck and like the Mm -hmm. in like the hotel but again those are like very few and far between there's might be uh, an argument to be made about like the civil war uh set which is just huge that i didn't even you know think of being in the movie you know once i started seeing the the soldiers i was like oh yeah you know civil war but i'm like i didn't even think it being you know part of this plot because i just thought big western there's gonna be a lot of people you know shooting and guns and you know horses and i'm just like oh yeah there's a war going on okay and like, oh, no, we're actually going to go to, you know, war camps and we're going to see both sides. And yeah, uh, the Civil uh, War plays a really integral part to the movie in a weird way. Yeah, it's not like, you know, there's mention of, you know, oh, the war is occurring, you know, something. So we kind of get, you know, a grasp of what the time period, uh, you know, is the in this movie. But yeah, I was kind of like, oh, OK, not what I expected, but let's see where it goes. And where the movie goes is so I find it incredibly interesting because it I I guess, you know, it, it's pretty obvious. This feels like um like Tarantino has been ripping off Good and the Man of the Ugly for years. It is one of his favorite movies. He's yeah. acknowledged that he borrows from it a lot and it's a lot of influence. But I see it the most because in a lot of I guess later stage Tarantino movies, there's a lot of us kind of spending time with the characters and it kinda of unfolds slowly, mm-hmm. and that really is what good and the bad the ugly feels like it feels like we're just kind of hanging out with tuco and blondie as the movie kind of just rolls along with their love-hate relationship did you like the tuco blondie thing because i can never it's i really like that power dynamic where you can never tell if they like each other at all or they are sworn enemies and it changes in between scenes Yeah, you know, I think they really do like each other, but it's just this thing of, you know, if someone's got to die to keep all the money, well, it's going to be me. But I mean, we see, you know, at the end how they really feel about each other, at least Blondie, where he's just kind of like, yeah, I'll spare you. So that's why when you get, you know, the the description, you know, only one man survives and it's just like, no, 
Yeah, well, I a flowery language. One of them yeah. dies, the other they all three of them could have died on oh, Sad yeah. Hill. But the interesting thing about I guess the Tuco and Blondie relationship because Angel Eyes is kind of off in the distance and he's he's just this presence mm-hmm. in the movie that we kind of jump back to every once in a while he's he, the shark he's the shark yeah we he disappears for like over an hour of the movie and then he just kind of reappears and you know then bad things happen yeah but we follow blondie and tuco a lot we actually follow tuco more than we follow blondie so we, yeah so you know clint eastwood is still like a b player in Good and the Bad and the Ugly, one of his most iconic films, because Eli Wallach just owns the show. Oh, yeah. I absolutely love Tuco. I was, um, you know, obviously walking in, I'm like, oh, okay, Clint Eastwood is going to be, you know, my character that I love in the movie. And I was like, oh, no, I actually really love Tuco because he's just, he's got nine lives. He's, he's funny. Mm-hmm. He's scummy. He's charming. He's charming. And he's an idiot. Yes. I I love the fact that they created this character that is so many different things at once. Because he's a bad guy, but he's too dumb to be evil. Yeah, it's not, you know, a malicious bad guy. It's just kind of like, eh, you know, it pays. Let's <laughs> it, do it. Let's go it, for it. It works out. You yeah. Know? And he adds so much, like, pathos to the character mm-hmm. when we go to the church and he gets to see his brother. And yeah, it's like, yes, I, I lost it when it was like, oh, yeah, the Ramirez brothers, because we know a couple of Ramirez brothers who we're very close to. And I was just like, yeah, you know, even though his brothers now, um, he said he was a priest, right? Or he's he is a priest. That's the one he talks to before he um, leaves, right? That they get into the, the fight. And that's like, you know, even as a priest, you know, they're still brothers and they're still throwing hands with each other. And it's like, yeah, this, this looks like a real relationship. Yeah. Well, uh, the other thing is. We get to see Tuco, and he does the whole thing of like, you know, there was only two ways to get out of the village. Either you become a priest or become a bandit, and you chose your path, I chose mine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I really start getting a sense of him as a character. He he feels like the character we get to know the most about, yeah. and we get to kind of care the most about. I mean, I love during that conversation when he's like, you left, you know, to join, you know, the priesthood. And, you know, I stayed with our parents, you know, all the way up until I was 12. Like, you know, just like... <laughs> Like, you know, he's like 40 years old. You know, yeah, I stood with them and I, I you know, skipped my life. And I was like, homie, you're 12. You're still a child. Like, you know. This is the old days. This is the old days. He was just like, oh, I'm 12. You know, I got to get to work. I, you know, I, I really have, you know, my life. You know, I got to get a handle on. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing about that character, the Tuco character, is he's, you know, Eli Walsh is stealing the show, yes. right? And Clint Eastwood even acknowledged that, like, he felt like he was a he was a secondary character in his fucking movie. Well, yeah, because you know, I thought, okay, this is the the greatest Eastwood performance. I'm like, I gotta see why it's the greatest. And then he doesn't really talk that much. And you know, when he does finally talk, it's a line. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, with Tuco, you know, you know, we're getting you know these deep thoughts and these funny one liners. I mean, I love the scene when he's in the bathtub. Yes, that is that is one of the funniest bits in the movie because, you know, he the gunman who almost killed Tuco in the beginning, like in literally the first scene yeah. of the movie, comes in and he's like, hey, buddy, looks like you and me have finally crossed ways once again. Looks like it's time for you to die. And I'm about to plug you in. Then Tuco just like shoots him dead. And he's like, when you're going to kill a man, do it. Don't talk about it. You know, finally, you know, he kind of broke like the fourth wall with, you know, 
we have these bad guys and they have to do their monologue and then obviously they die because they're talking for like 45 minutes when you could have just done what you needed to do and then the the james bond paradox right yes so i mean i love that scene where it's not only ridiculous him taking a bath but we see the whole sequence of him going through like the different things for the bath and making himself a bath and it's nice and pretty and there he is you know enjoying himself and because it's tuco of course he's got his gun with him in the bath you never know who's gonna show up yeah and it's it's so interesting to me again because that's you know the leone style right yeah. but you're you're kind of weirded out by like clint eastwood's not talking a lot well this is this is like his third film with leone because he does he had done um a fistful of dollars a few dollars more and he, it's kind of the same thing clint eastwood probably rightfully so felt like a lot of the dialogue that was written for these kind of movies just wasn't very good so mm-hmm. he would try and like he would ask Leone to like just condense my lines to as little as possible. And Leone also was more interested in, in I guess, the looks characters yeah. would give than I actually like the lines they would deliver. But it is really off-putting in the movie when you have Tuco, you know, just speed running like pages and pages and pages of dialogue. I mean, even Angel Eyes talks more than Blondie does. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's just kind of so off-putting where it's like, well... You know, I get it. You're the strong, silent type. You're the mysterious guy. You know, I'm here really just to look at you and watch what you can do. But it's just like everyone else is more or less talking. And you've got like a sentence to say here and there. It's just kind of weird. Well, it's the establishing of that that cool Clint Eastwood, you know, mm-hmm. this the strong, silent type. The guy that doesn't, you know, does a lot but says very little and you got to think about it in kind of context because these are you know spaghetti westerns their responses to kind of those old john wayne westerns Mm -hmm. the burt lancaster westerns gary cooper westerns there's no pilgrim in this movie either before you start again look look here pilgrim but that's the thing like the movie that we have here feels like it's kind of changing that Western hero mm-hmm. because in, in stagecoach, we talked about it, you know, uh, not too long ago where John Wayne, he's a lot more of a personable kind mm-hmm. of character. He is kind of talking with everyone in the, in the stagecoach, trying to like weed everybody out, you know, flirting with Dallas whenever he gets the opportunity. Yeah. Big flirt, John Wayne, big flirt, the Ringo kid. I mean, that man could fill out a pair of jeans. <laughs> yes, we get it. John, young John Wayne, he could get it. Whew, and young Clint Eastwood, because, I mean, we didn't really talk about it in the last episode, but I really love the costuming in this movie, too. Oh, yeah. The, well, the costuming in this movie is really gritty and really dirty, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's the opposite of Stagecoach, where Stagecoach was very, maybe, maybe not like, pretty but it was a little bit more like theatrical yeah you know the john wayne uh western garb felt like something you would see in like a the a romanticized painting of what a cowboy would look like and in this one this is the you know clint eastwood this is the cowboy that every man wants to dress up as you know with, with the serape and the boots and the hat i mean you see that costume in just about every cartoon every riff of this movie back to the future parody oh it. yeah you know, and it's it's kind of interesting in that sense, you know, because even down to the costumes, the movie's dirty. The movie's yeah. really gritty, and 
that's kind of the world that Leone is composing, right? Mm-hmm. He's composing the opposite of the traditional Western. And I'm wondering your your thoughts on this. You know, we watched Stagecoach, we watched Good and the Man and the Ugly, and Stagecoach, we said, was like, that's the foundation. That's what yeah. Westerns were for 20 years after it was made. And then this movie, well, the Spaghetti Westerns come out and it completely just washes away that romanticism, that mythology. Oh, yeah. This is, you know, the, you know, not true grit John Wayne, but this is the true grit of, you know, the Western world and what was going on at the time. And I kind of like, I I love the contrast between the romanticized and the realistic, you know, where they're walking, you know, miles and miles in the desert. And they're all chapped from the wind. And it's just like, I love the realism in this movie where these could be actual real people fighting for gold. Yes. And I love that. I love like the MacGuffin of the gold because for the most part, the gold is only an excuse to get these characters to go from point A to point B, right? Yeah. But the fact that it is this gold, it's it's doing a lot to talk about, you know, kind of the themes of the movie. Um, because, you know, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah. Uh, we have um, Eli, Wal- or Eli Walsh, he's playing Tuco, and he is the, the, the ugly. ugly. And what makes him the ugly? Because, you know, Blondie, he's the good, Leaving and... Um, Leaving Cleef. Leaving Cleef, Angel Eyes, he's the bad. But it's like, they're all bad. Yeah. They're all kind of good. I mean, I, I guess except Angel Eyes, he's pure evil. Yeah. But they're all, but the ugly is their greed. They're all greedy mm-hmm. men. That's what, you know, sitting there and trying to figure it out when I watch it, because I'm like, it's not ugly in a literal sense. I'm like... The movie's I'm, beautiful. Th- yeah, the movie's beautiful, but, you know, the character of ugly. I was just like, okay, I'm like, is it ugly that, you know, he's just very blatantly honest with his intentions? You know, it's like... Is he ugly because he's a Jewish actor playing a Mexican? I mean... I didn't. I've never heard of Eli Walsh before. Or Wallach. Wallach. Yeah. yeah. It, I also called him Eli Walsh for years <laughs> until somebody pronounced it in front of me. I was like, "Oh yeah, that is not how it's pronounced at all." Yeah. yeah so it's like I had no idea who he was. Um, yeah. Wow. Surprised he's not a a Mexican actor. But um, you were like, I was about to claim him for 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 my people. He looked like uh, one of my grandpa's brothers. That's why I was just kind of like, <laughs> oh, for real? that's why I was just kind of like, I think that's maybe why I gravitated towards his character because he just reminded me of family. Mm-hmm. But he was also the most realistic character where it was just, you know, well, I've gotten myself into another jam. All right, I'll find a way to get out of it. And, you know, yeah, if I got to he- lay here by the train tracks and wait for them to, you know, break the cuffs off of me. We'll do that, and we'll just keep moving on from there. It's just like, damn, Tuco. I love that stunt, right? Because that's yeah. actually Eli Wallach. And what happens is he's gotten arrested, and they're going to take him to like a prison camp and all this other stuff. And he jumps off a train with the the guard that's locked him up. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, well, I killed the guard. Yeah. But now I'm stuck in the desert with him handcuffed to me. Oh, there's another train coming. I got it. And he sets it up, and it's a real fucking train, right? Yeah. And it's careening down, and it's this beautiful shot where the train's coming, and, and Eli Walsh is, like, crouching mm-hmm. down and try- and has the chain right on the rail, right? Yeah. And as it's coming through, it runs over the chain and breaks it, right? Yeah. What's crazy about it is there's a step on mm-hmm. that train that passes by. You can see it in the movie. It passes, I think, an inch over his head. Yeah. If Eli Walsh fucked up, the movie's over. 
He's dead. He's oh, decapitated. Oh, yeah. That was a thing where they said that he almost died three times during the making of the movie. That was one because he could have been decapitated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm struggling to remember the second one. But the first one was that someone during production, I guess, when he was, you know, in the middle of a scene taking a break, he had his soda next to him and someone set down um, a bottle of acid for whatever. Oh, yeah. And he the, picked the acid up. to loosen up the cloth on the gold bags. Yeah. So he ended up picking that up and drinking out of it. And, it, you know, obviously made him sick because it's acid. And it was, you know, a gripe that, you know, he almost lost his life three times for the movie. And, you know, a lot of people were saying that that was kind of a Leone thing where it was just he wasn't really into safety. It was more just the vision and, you know, getting this completed. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, you you got real people out here that, you know, you could kill them with some of the things that are happening. It's kind of terrifying. Oh, um, the, the second part you were thinking of, I know which one it is because it's also the one that Clint Eastwood straight up refused to do. Oh, the the horse. Oh, it wasn't, well, it wasn't just the horse. Well, the horse, I think, also did it, but the one that um, Eastwood refused to do, when the bridge blows up, right? Yeah. Because there's the big, beautiful uh, Civil War battlefield where it's like a thousand extras, and they're they're blowing up a bridge, right? Because the Tuco and Blondie have the genius idea of, like, they're fighting over the bridge. If we blow up the bridge, they'll leave. They're distracted. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So they blow up the bridge, and it's a real-ass explosion. They're using, like, actual, like, a ton of dynamite to blow up this bridge, and we see the shot where um, Eastwood and Wallach are crouched down behind this little like sand bunker, mm-hmm. right? And it explodes. And you can see what looks to be like a cinder block fling by and mm-hmm. it crashes right against the, the sandbags. Yeah. About a foot away from Eastwood's head. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, because it was in... Okay, not Eastwood. It was the stuntman because Eastwood said, oh, you're going to really blow up a bridge? Well, fuck that. I'm standing back yeah, here. Get yeah. A, get one of the stuntmen to sit there. Yeah, I wouldn't be sitting there, you know, that close. It's going to look beautiful, but yeah, that's okay. I don't want to risk, you know, something flying off and, you know, taking my head off. Yeah, but you are kind of right. Leone did have this thing of being this perfectionist and he did have this tendency to maybe do some things that were a little too dangerous for a movie. Yeah, because I I think one of the other ones that, you know, could have killed him was when Tuco's on the horse and he's completely, you know, wrapped up in the rope he's got, you know, to restrain him so he could be hung. So when the horse takes off and he, you know, the horse is going and he's sitting on the horse with his hands behind his back. Yeah, that actually happened. There was something happened and the horse did get spooked and it took off and they used that scene and he's like, the horse wouldn't stop. And he's like, and they didn't try to stop the horse. They just let me kept, you know, keep going. And I mean, it, you know, cinematically, it looks great, you know, seeing him take off. It's funny. But it's like, yeah, I'd be terrified being on a horse and not knowing, is this horse going to buck me off? And I'm, you know, I I can't protect myself if I go flying off the horse. Yeah, because it because that is one of those things, because that happens twice in the movie, because mm-hmm. the setup of why... Um, Tuco and Blondie are scam artists is because one of my favorite like scams in all of movies is Tuco has this $3,000 bounty on his head right that he's very proud of for good reason there's a lot of there's a long list of things he's done and Blondie has this idea of like well I can capture you turn you in for the reward money and then if I save you before you're hung I can just go to the next town and turn you in and get and keep doubling up on my he's basically a bounty hunter exactly so two goes there and he's on the horse and you know 
they're about to like hang him and he shoots and he shoots the rope and mm-hmm. then you know rides off into the sunset right also one of the biggest massacres in this movie are the hats oh yes eastwood shoots off like 12 hats in this movie just for the fun of it yeah i, I thought that was hilarious but i'm like those poor hats i mean it's like every town every you know execution i'm gonna destroy the rope and then i'm gonna throw people off by shooting their hats off you just really like that hat game I like his hat game. He's got a nice hat. It's a strong hat. Yes. Strong hat. But it it's very interesting how the movie is composing a lot of those moments, right? Mm-hmm. Because the action beats, for the most part, are pretty sparsed out. We have, yeah. you know, the beginning where Tuco kills the three gunmen and then jumps out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have... With a, what is it, a turkey leg? With a turkey leg in hand, yeah. yeah. And then it's like, we get Angel Eyes and he kills the two guys and he kills um the guy and his son and then rides off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. And then we have Blondie and the Tuco and that like shootout thing. And then the movie kind of even slows down a little bit more from that because there's a whole sequence of Eastwood and Wallace just wandering the desert. Yeah. And that goes on for like 10 minutes. I mean, it's really good. It felt it- longer than that. It, it might be longer than that, but, like, that's good because it establishes, like, the heat and how the environment's super dangerous, but it's not an action scene. Like, that's that's the thing, like... And we finally see, um, oh, my God, they said his name so much, and I can't think of it now, the guy with the eye patch, the one that has the information about the gold. Um, uh, it's, like, Clint Baker? Or, or Bob. Bob something. Yeah. It's Bob Carson. Bob Carson, there you yeah. go. We finally... Or Bill Carson. Bill Carson, Bob Carson, you know. It's, it's a BC there. Yeah, you know, eye patch, dude. You know, we, we finally get to Bill the, Bill or Bob. We get to the plot. And it's like, oh my God, you know, this name, you know, Angel Eyes, who's been looking for this guy. We finally found him. And then he dies. And it's just like, okay. And then, you know, uh, Blondie's like, well, I got the information as I pass out. Because he, cause he knows, like, Tuco's got to save him. Because he, yeah. he knows Tuco's greedier than he is filled with hate for Blondie, which is great. Yeah. But what I was kind of alluding to before, the movie, you know, spaces out its action beats a lot. Would you quantify this as an action film? There's a lot of good action beats in it. There are, but yeah, it's just, they're so very spread out. That, you know, it's like for a, a while, you know, it gets pretty quiet and you're just like, okay. And it, then action happens all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, this is a Western. This is an action movie. It's like, I guess you can. Yeah. But, well, the I mean, other thing is a lot of the action is, you know, somebody pulls a gun on Blondie. He shoots them and then they are dead. And yeah. that that's it. Yeah. This isn't like other Westerns, you know, gl- gunslinger movies where, you know, it's constant, you know, a barrage of bullets and, you know, people falling to the ground. This one, it's very strategic until we finally get to those moments where Blondie could show off, you know, I got the fastest hands in the West. You know, who's coming at me? Yeah, it. this isn't like the Wild Bunch. This Mm-mm. isn't like um, even like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance mm-hmm. Kid. This is it, it's really wild to me because I wouldn't call this an actual I would call it an epic. Yeah, it's it's almost like an it's almost like an opera it's very dramatic it's very big you know the it's it's a lot of melodrama going on but you know it i call it an opera that's probably because of the score 
Yes. Um, there's there's no way to talk about Sergio Leone without talking about Ennio Morricone. No, no. I mean, the score is another character in this movie. And I know I say that a lot with, you know, other epic scores. But I mean, this score is heard in every scene of the movie. It's ha- it's it's half the cast. It's half the performance. It's not even, you know, the score. It's the, the main theme. That That's what we hear throughout and it's just in different variations that we hear it you know where it's more of the you know the animalistic where you hear like the coyote mixed in with the the theme or you... the, yeah, the strings and all that other mm-hmm. stuff and it... then you have you know the more kind of um melodic ones where it's just you know you're hearing like the actual orchestra play you know over and that one's more satisfying but the you know the one with the strings and the, the animals then you feel like you know i'm in danger something bad's gonna happen but I mean, ex- Ecstasy of Gold. Yes, the Ecstasy of Gold is legitimately one of my favorite like musical pieces ever. It's up there with you know the Lawrence of Arabia theme, um, Casablanca. Uh, you know, all- time goes by. Time goes. Uh, yeah, iconic songs of cinema mm-hmm. like the the music of two thousand one. Yeah. You know, dun, dun dun. Yeah, there's so you know there's so many great musical pieces, but. The ecstasy of gold, mm-hmm. that buildup, it gives you chills. It does. Especially when and when Tuco's running around and he's in Sad Hill and he's looking for it and the camera's spinning and spinning mm-hmm. until we just like lose Tuco because it's so overwhelming where yeah. he is and you kind of just pull into it and it's insane. It is like pure cinema. I've used the, the term like pure cinema a few times before, but this is like communicating so much emotionally mentally iconograph iconically with just like the the camera work and the music and without dialogue and its actual performance it's it's so good well i mean you know we're also told you know the gold's buried in a cemetery and you know right away i think of like you know like the ghost town cemetery at like knots where it's you know a smallish cemetery and then you get there and it's just like no it's acres of land with just you know makeshift headstones it's sad hill and it is epic and it's just like my god you know how are you gonna find this even if you have the name for you know as the marker where the gold is buried you'd have to go and look at every single cross to finally get to that yeah and you know i've seen a lot of um cheaper movies Mm -hmm. um like this you know cheaper spaghetti westerns cheaper like foreign italian films action films things like that and a lot of those movies that's what you would get you know oh we're going up to boot hill and boot hill is 12 headstones on in the middle of nowhere hey we love walking through boot hill at knots (laughs) yeah exactly but that's like the thing you know in your head you think it is going to be you know 12 headstones maybe 20 the, the production did it in like a weekend, all right? He probably blew all his money on the fucking Civil War thing. It can't be that big. Then you see it, and it's like you carved out the entire valley to make this like football field-sized graveyard. And yeah, it feels like so overwhelming when you see it because, yeah, the logic of that moment is Tuco, even if you had a week you might not even find the guy. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's a thing where it's like, it's also this thing that goes into one of the themes of the movie is this very anti-war mm-hmm. and cost of violence in, you know, war, in cinema, in, you know, human cult, human nature. 
because you know they're here to gr- take the gold out of like literal graves they're grave robbers yeah. right and it's like oh you know all these men died just for like the profits of this like that's what it's mm-hmm. all been about and it's it's well, beautiful but um fun fact about sad hill right yeah so that was an actual set it was built in spain yeah there's a documentary on netflix that you can watch it's called sad hill unearthed where these um spanish fans who you know grew up watching good the men the ugly mm-hmm. they were like well yeah it was filmed over there because it just gone into disrepair it yeah. was completely emptied and they completely rebuilt the cemetery awesome they they dug it up they found the actual original stones or whatever um and if you donated i think it was like a hundred bucks for the restoration project your name got put onto one of the headstones oh that's really cool yeah but the thing is is um anytime i think a member of the cast or crew passed away there they have like um headstones reserved for those people oh okay yeah so lee van cleef's on there eli wallach on there Sergio maloney's on there Mm -hmm. and there's one spot reserved for like clint eastwood right yeah because uh, he, I think he did a Skype call to um, when they compl- opened it up mm-hmm. as like a tourist attraction, and he was like, "Yo, I, last time I was out there, shit, I had hair." And, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean that's that's really cool. I mean, it's like giant. You know, when when we, I was doing my research about the movie and Marfa, Texas, and I was showing you that uh, that vlog that that one guy did, and he went out and like all the stuff from the ranches were still there. The like Bix Ranch, the the sign was still there. the The windmill from like uh, Jets, you know, property that was still standing. And it's like, wow, you know, some of these places, they still exist. They're not just you know alive in these movies. They're still out there. And that's why you know I love being a fan of movies and you know seeing other fans of movies that go and love restoring and keeping these places preserved because they matter. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the beauty of good and the bad and the ugly is because it's one of those movies that kind of like you know was was a was a um a calling card right like mm-hmm. the, it was like okay every western that comes after this movie is needs to acknowledge it right yeah. you know we do not get the wild bunch we don't get Bur- butch casting the sundance kid we don't get unforgiven we don't get Dances with Wolves, mm-hmm. we don't get, you know, Tombstone. Quick, tombstone, we don't get Quigley Down Under without having this revisionist look, this dirty, gritty look at the at the Western, the demystification of the Western in Good and the Bad and the Ugly and the Dollars trilogy and the Italian film um film culture that looked at the Western and said well we can do this but we are going to make it more violent we're going to make it more gritty we're going to make it a little bit more realistic mm-hmm. because we don't want to have singing gene autry as our yeah. western hero anymore we want you know real people yes but um even though i'm sure you know way back in the day you know cowboys were singing happy trails probably but um speaking of you know we want realistic things one thing that's not realistic and i wonder if you picked it up so did you like the dubbing in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I picked it up. I was like, I'm like, is that just me? I'm like... Is this movie out of sync? Yeah, or? I did pause it a couple of times. I'm like, okay, let me you know, start it again so I can get it to... And I was like, oh, it is dubbed. Huh. Weird. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if you enjoy this kind of style of the spaghetti western, but 
if you do get into it, mm-hmm. or if our conversation has sparked you wanting to watch some of more of these movies, mm-hmm. uh, they're all like this. Yeah. Because for the most part, and this is, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is actually accurate, Italian film um, culture, like filmmaking, mm-hmm. this goes back to like the neorealist, Fellini, uh, De Sica, they would not record live audio. Yeah. So they would just have you say your lines in whatever language you spoke. Mm-hmm. You can see it in movies like Suspiria, where there's actors who spoke only German, only French, only Italian, and then your lead only spoke English. And you would just kind of do your performance in whatever language you got, and the other guy would then just do his lines in whatever language he had, and then they would just dub that fucker over in post. Yeah. Which is so weird, because the movie's actually, like, well-acted, but it's it, it blows my mind because, you know... You are Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. right? And I am the sheriff. I'm only speaking Italian to you, and you have no idea what the fuck I'm saying. Yeah, you just have to know your lines and be like, okay, well, I delivered my sentence. Now what do we do? <laughs> and I think that's kind of why the movies kind of works and why that Clint Eastwood, like, silent type works. Because mm-hmm. it's feeling a lot more, like, emotive yeah. Then, like, dialogue-driven, you know? We're getting a lot more of a sense of, like, feeling than we are getting a sense of um, maybe, like, character revelation through dialogue. It It is just a weird thing about Italian movies is that they're all fucking dubbed like this, worse than bad kung fu movies. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we're getting a lot of emotion, expression, so that's kind of nice to see it, you know, versus just lines and lines and monologues. It's like, no, you know, we're actually getting the human experience and kind of just trying to you know read the characters basically yeah but um so i I think i've exhausted my little list of talking points uh, at least so for for now uh did you have anything you wanted to talk about the movie i mean i just have my calendar in front of me but uh you know we hit costuming we talked about music because the music is so important beautiful in this movie um we talked a little bit about the iconography because this movie is iconic. Uh, I mean, you, you just look at that silhouette of Clint Eastwood with the poncho and the hat and whatnot. Like in, what was that Johnny Depp animated movie with the lizard? Oh, Rango. Rango? Yeah. In, in Rango, you have a Clint Eastwood character show up that is dressed like he is in Good and the Bad and the Ugly. I mean, you have um, Star Wars, Boba Fett. Some of his costume was inspired by Clint Eastwood, his... The, his, the, the, the poncho thing? The, yeah, like the cape, the poncho that he has, his mannerisms where he doesn't really speak, but, you know, he's got fast hands, you know, he's a bounty hunter, so it's just, you see... Literally these... in Star Wars, when Han shoots yeah. um, the, uh, who's it? Greedo. Gre- shoots Greedo underneath the table, that's the same move Lee Van Cleef mm-hmm. does in the opening of this movie. Again, it well, I mean, echoes. Uh, Tuco, too, you know, was shooting through the water. It's like, you know, or shooting through the bubbles, at least. It's like, you know, you see all these these calling cards back to these movies that have inspired so many other filmmakers. And um, I mean, Tarantino owns owes a lot of his filmmaking style to Leone. Yeah. But uh, I think one thing we could talk about is the uh, is it the hate hate relationship between Leone and Clint Eastwood? yes i guess we yeah it's probably good due diligence to talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff that comes out after this movie 
because I was shocked you know. that this was the third film in the trilogy because I've never seen the trilogy before. You know, I wasn't sure if, you know, is this what we're starting with? You know, we're starting with this, you know, epic and then we're moving, you know, progressionally with, you know, what happens after he gets the money. And it's like, no, you know, this is the end. Yeah, because this is called this trilogy it's you can either call it like the man with no name trilogy or the dollars trilogy Mm -hmm. it really depends on who you're talking to um but they are all they're three movies they're all thought to be connected because they're connected in themes and in actions and a lot of the actors repeat themselves over and over Mm -hmm. again they usually have clint eastwood as they all have clint eastwood as the lead as the stars you know the quiet gunman who comes into town and does yada 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 but it's really weird when you really look at them as a trilogy because Fistful of Dollars is literally a remake of Yojimbo, mm-hmm. a Kurosawa film about a wandering samurai comes in the town and, you know, comedy ensues. But they all get a little bit bigger as they go on. This is the third film in the franchise. It's the most expensive one. It's the it's the one that's the actual epic. If you were looking for one that was more of an action film... Uh, Fistful of Dollars is probably where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And then A Few Dollars More is a little bit more like this. It's a little bit longer. It's a little bit more, has a little bit more pathos to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, none of them even come close to Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Good and the Bad and the Ugly is Leone's first masterpiece. Mm-hmm. You know, because he makes six or seven movies in his lifetime and three of them are masterpieces. This is the first one. But we have the the controversy between... Leonian Eastwood. Yes. Because um, I think I read, you know, that Leone was just kind of, you know, criticizing Eastwood's performance and kind of demeanor. And I know there was a thing where he tried to drag in um, De Niro when they were working on Once Upon a Time in America. And I think he was doing like an interview and he was like, oh, you know, Bobby's great. You know, Bobby really knows how to act and he could do this, this and that. Unlike some people. And it's just like. Yeah. Like, ooh. Because it, it is a, a thing where their relationship was, yeah, you can call it hate, hate. I think they both, like, respected each other. Mm-hmm. But as things go on, because Leone always wanted to bring Eastwood back. Yeah. Um, and Eastwood was like, I'm done with you. Like, you know, I've put up with enough. We're good. Yeah, because if you, if you know anything about Clint Eastwood's directorial style, it's the exact opposite of, mm-hmm. of Leone. Eastwood's like one take, that's all we need, and we're moving on very quick, you know, all that stuff. Leone was a perfectionist, Mm -hmm. and he really put Eastwood through the ringer. He would make him do like dozens and dozens and dozens of takes, and this movie's three hours long, Mm -hmm. and there's shit that was cut from this. And you got to think how many things were in the movie that, and how many takes all these things took. And he's using one camera, you know, all those. 50 different angles he's making eastwood stand there for like two days as he's catching everything in two different countries yeah three different countries i think but that's again a whole other can of worms but he tries to get eastwood to come back for once upon a time in the west and eastwood just refuses yeah he says i don't want to do that i don't want to fly out anywhere i'm good that's why you got charles bronson and then when he did once upon a time in america he was like I was gonna get Eastwood, but then De Niro showed up, and uh, you know, he's a better actor than Clint Eastwood, and you know, Clint Eastwood didn't really take that uh, too well. Yeah, didn't he send a, a setup to somebody that was on the set or working part of the Once a Time in America set? 
what what's a serape? What you want, what he wears. Oh, the poncho. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I I don't know these fancy words. Well, I think the difference between a serape and a poncho is a poncho has a hood. Oh, is that what the difference is? I think so. So a serape, it's just, it, it drapes over you, it protects you, but it doesn't have the hood. Oh, I see. I so, see. you know, so I think he did send it to someone on the set kind of like, you know, well, I know you're probably going to show it to, you know, Leone. So, you know, let's do that. And then I think after this movie, he gave his serape to a Mexican restaurant somewhere here in like Northern California. Okay, that's... And they, they hung it up in the restaurant and it was just like, you know... If people knew, they knew, and if they didn't, they had no idea that, you know, a piece of Hollywood history was sitting right there. Yeah, and I mean, that is kind of the crazy, like, aftermath of the movie, and also gives into, like, the weird nature of the budget, because it had a, a really big budget for the yeah. time. It was a, a $1.6 million, and Eastwood's like, yeah, I used most of my own clothes. Most of the costume was mine. He's like, the boots were mine from, like, Rawhide, mm-hmm. the hat I got from some, like tailor shop or whatever and it's like bro this is a this is you see the civil war set they couldn't afford to get you like a new costume or whatever because that serape see mm-hmm. i'm using the word you now are that's from the first two movies yeah and it's the same one it had never been like washed yeah i i know? liked when i read about that i'm like that that just adds to the character mm-hmm. i mean this is the west you know it's not gonna be ooh, i got really dusty today let me go you know wash my my pants, my this. It's like, no, they just, they get up and they go. And he doesn't look like, you know, wow, this, you know, can't really call him a cowboy, but, you know, this bounty hunter, he's super clean, you know? It, it's Yeah, it's the difference between John Wayne, who looks like he just, you know, fresh shave when he shows mm-hmm. up in Stagecoach versus, you know, Blondie here where he looks like, bro, you, you rode in from the desert kind of thing. Yeah. But that's kind of the interesting thing. The movie and all like those props and all this other thing it has this very weird feel about it because it has this kind of it has this big epic grand quality of a blockbuster but it the nature of it feels like kind of a gritty exploitation film with like a lot of the costuming a lot of like the violence of the movie Mm because it's not gory in any way i mean the most rough part of the movie is when they're beating the shit out of tuco yeah the torture scene yeah that, that, that was a rough scene and the fact that the the band that's playing knows that the reason we're playing is because angel eyes is beating the crap out of somebody in there and you have what is it the the violinist yes where he just stops and you know he's crying and they tell him you know you better start playing again and it's, you just feel so many emotions i love that scene because again without saying anything it tells you so much. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, so another one, another one. All the guys know he's crying. The guy, the violinist guy, is crying, and it's this, you know, little uh, like Italian dude who's just like, oh, you know, tears or whatever. And they're like, keep playing, goddamn it. And it's like that tells you so much about this world. This like again, rough, rough and tumble, gritty world mm-hmm. that is just so powerful. Yeah, and it's like ah, I, I just really love this movie. It's a very, very good movie. It is. I you know. I enjoyed it a lot more than I expected. Still, biggest gripe is such a long movie, and I feel like you know a lot of it could have been condensed down to move at a a faster pace. Well, there is an American cut of this. Well, there's okay. There's two cuts of the movie. There's the one that we watched, mm-hmm. which was called the extended American cut. That's okay. the three hour one. 
There's another one that was the original English theatrical release that's like 160 minutes mm-hmm. uh, where they just like trim off like 18, 20 minutes of um, of the movie. So that's probably one of those things where they just chop up a lot of the scenes and make them a lot tighter. Yeah. But then you I feel like you doing doing that, you lose a lot of the score tying in and building up and things like that, because that's why the movie's so fucking long, because Leone refused to cut um morricone's score in scenes yeah i mean that i could totally understand uh you know just taking in the the views Mm. because i mean you know it's supposed to be you know like santa fe uh new mexico here and it's like no you know it's rome or it's spain but it's just like you know it's beautiful to see the mountains and you know the desert and it's like yeah you know i enjoy looking at all of this and kind of just feeling like i'm standing in the middle of this desert like but, the opening shot where it's this beautiful mountain range and yeah. then some guy's ugly face punches into the frame. Yeah, I was just kind of like, what the hell is going on? You know, this dude's just like, you know, mugging in the camera like, okay, like, move, please. I, I want to keep looking at this town and, you know, the surroundings. But yeah, I, I guess that's his his directorial style is just, you know, uh, we do long cuts and we, you know, really zoom in on faces. Yep. And I, I know that's also to help us, you know, come down the line later in the movie when this guy meets up with Tuco in the bathtub. Yeah, it's that that one of the opening shots serves that story point. And also, like you said, Leone likes contrasting huge, beautiful landscapes in this giant, you know, 70 millimeter look and frame. And then contrasting that with super tight close-ups like like you know the sad hill the shootout Mm -hmm. we go from this giant like like massive wide shot to close-ups of eyes to hands to Mm close-up to eyes to massive wide shots and it builds up all that tension and it's i think that's i think that's amazing part of the movie is it builds up so well like the movie as the movie goes along and it's getting closer and closer to to the cemetery it's building up all that tension and you're just Mm -hmm. like like I'm invest I'm I get so invested in this movie as I watch it cuz again we we have similar tastes but we have very different um views on film pace yeah. you know I'm, I I was I was like a lot happier with the 4 plus hours of uh Once Upon a Time in America than you were Yeah and I mean I think of the two movies I preferred Once Upon a Time in America more over than The Good Bad the Ugly Really Oh yeah well I mean there's a lot more there's a lot more plot and storyline and things are happening and there's betrayals and, you know, we're seeing these kids, you know, go from childhood to adulthood. So, you know, we're really traveling with the the characters. And in this movie, it's, you know, I don't know, days, weeks that we're with the characters. I think they mentioned, I think they mentioned it's around eight months is the length of the entire uh, three hour film. Okay. So, you know, eight months while it's still a long period of time. It's not the 40 years we're seeing in Once Upon a Time in America. No. So that's why, you know, it's very different where, you know, it's a beautiful movie, you know, aesthetic, uh, you know, the characters are iconic, but, you know, Once Upon a Time in America, you know, we're growing up with these characters and we're just seeing, you know. How they betray, you know, each other, even though they've kind of been a family to each other since childhood. And I think that's an interesting thing that shows up a lot in Leone's work is betrayal Mm -hmm. is a very central theme in a lot of his films. And in this one, it's, you know, it's the kind of playful betrayal between Tuco and Blondie. Mm -hmm. But in 
uh, Once Upon a Time in America, it's a very like darker, sadder betrayal yeah. between De Niro and James Wood's character. And it is interesting because I would, I really would have thought you would have pulled to Good and the Bad and the Ugly over Once Upon a Time in America. Well, I mean, I I love you know character development. Um, you like a lot more character driven films. Yeah, and in this movie, you know. Tuco is a character of all characters, and I, I absolutely loved him, but it's just, you know, it was just very quiet, very kind of, you know, enjoying the sights and, you know, what's going on. But yeah, I, I really didn't feel like this was a very character-driven movie. I can see where you're coming from because our characters feel so foreign and so quiet and so detached from everything going on. Like, like... Eastwood's Blondie feels completely detached from, like, the shit he's seeing. Yeah, that's why it's like, we don't have any backstory on Angel Eyes. So it'd be different if, you know, we're coming in and we, you know, saw these guys, you know, and how they ended up being the men that we're seeing on the screen. You you wanted the... You're like, I don't want the six-hour cut of Once Upon in America, but I want the six-hour cut of Good Man and the Ugly. Yeah, I want to see how we've gotten to this point. Because, I mean, during this time, you know, in history... Yeah, a lot of people didn't make it to old age because lots of different things are happening. And especially if you have, you know, um, cowboys and gunslingers and, you know, um, bandits. It's like, yeah. (laughs) I just find it fascinating. You're like, ah, three hour movie. Ah, this is too much. I mean, they added another hour and a half to explain Blondie. It's (laughs) Yeah, you know, I, I need some backstory. I I really think you would enjoy the rest of the Dollars trilogy because I'm okay. A uh, fistful of dollars I think is actually like a tight ninety. I don't think it's actually very long. I mm-hmm. think a few dollars more is about two and a half, maybe mm-hmm. between two and two and a half. So I think you would probably really dig those ones. Okay. Uh, um. Also, fistful of dollars for my money, best Clint Eastwood introduction in any movie. Um. But I guess that kind of rounds us out. So your final thought on the movie, didn't like it? No, I, I liked it. It's just, you know, ran a little slow, um, needed a little bit more, um, just needed more words in it. I mean, I felt like, you know, Tuco was really the only one talking in this movie. And rightfully so, that's how he kind of, you know, gets around things. He talks, he creates stories. Uh, like his brother, he's like, you know, oh, you left your wife behind. And he's like, well, which one? You know, I always have one wherever I go. And then you see him get in the, the stagecoach with Blondie and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, my brother, he loves me. He was begging me to stay. And it's just kind of like, well, I want to know this kind of sad backstory to you where you feel like you have to lie about, you know, the great things in your life because you don't really have that much. So it's like I'd love to see more, you know, the character driven sides. But no, I love the movie, you know, very iconic, uh, beautiful, the music, amazing. I would, I would recommend. You would recommend? If people have, you know, three hours to spare, recommend. Okay, okay. I, I see what you're getting at. Like, I can understand why it's not your cup of tea necessarily, mm-hmm. but it is definitely mine. I oh, I know. loved this movie. Yeah, this was, this was um like, Eastwood Westerns were a staple in my household. You know, my uh, me and my dad, we watched, like, all these kinds of movies. But yeah, Good and the Bad and the Ugly, I think, again... It's one of the Leone masterpieces. Uh, I adore the film. I think it's such an, a massive achievement of cinema. 
it really is kind of one of the benchmarks of the Western genre mm-hmm. that all other Westerns are going to be measured by, you know? But, yeah, I would 100% recommend this to anybody. Even if you don't have three hours, make the three hours. Get it done. <laughs> this is necessary viewing for any film nerd. Yeah, that's true. But next week, we are doing um, a film that's completely different. That's right. We're doing a Western that's more my speed, my style. I think you could classify it as a Western. It mostly sticks within, you know, the Western timeline, even though we break a little bit. Once we go to the Warner Brothers back lot. We do, because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite movies, definitely on my top 100, Blazing Saddles. Ah, Mel Brooks, Cleveland Little, uh, Gene Wilder. Madeline Kahn. Madeline Kahn. Uh, one, the, the film that really put Mel Brooks on a pedestal of comedy that uh, all others are measured by. It's a movie that continually people say could never be made today. Absolutely not. Uh, but still, everyone says it can never be made today. But it's one of the funniest movies ever made. I mean, in the same token, you know, he just came out with History of the World Part 2 on Hulu. Mm-hmm. I've seen, I think, maybe three episodes And, I mean, it's a lot like Blazing Saddles. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, you kind of have to understand he's not going after anybody. He makes fun of everybody. Yes. Uh, But I can't wait to talk about that. Oh, me too. I'm so excited to finally talk about Blazing Saddles. Yes. But if you wanted to get that episode, where can they go? Well, if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Yes, you can find our YouTube channel on the Film Vault. That's the Film Vault on YouTube. Uh, you can go like, comment, subscribe. Check out all of our cool slideshows. We of love these, slideshows. We love slideshows of this uh, podcast. And if you wanted to follow us on social media, you can go to... The Film Club Podcast on Instagram, where we post upcoming episodes, daily stories, random trivia, and our random adventures we go on. And with that... We'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. 